Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Rena Maycock, the founder of Kilter Child Protection Software, columnist at The Currency and co-founder at Intro Matchmaking. Rena, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rena. Chuffed to have you. Look, what we do here is we typically go back to chapter one, where everything started in the early days, and then work our way from there. So you've told me that you're from Whitehall in Dublin. You grew up there. Any favorite memories of your time growing up in Dublin? Oh my gosh. Do you know, I, I only lived outside Dublin for a couple of years. I moved to Galway when I was chief executive of a, a couple of radio stations. And aside from that, I never left Dublin because I am such a home bird. Uh, my friends all jetted off to do their J1s and, and live the dream in Australia. And I just thought, why would anybody want to do that? I just love Dublin. I love Ireland. We're our other business, Intro Matchmaking, which my husband is now overseeing the, the franchise rollout of and as part of that, like our first franchise is it has opened up in Austria, as part of that, he's trying to convince me because Vienna has the best standard of living statistically, he keeps pushing me to move. And I'm just like, sorry, buddy, it's just not happening. In answer to your question, it's a very roundabout way of saying it, but I really loved my childhood in, in Dublin. I did all of the, the usual things. I started to misbehave when I was about 14. Uh, it was to, uh, a real handful for my parents, but I, I think in retrospect, if you aren't a little bit of a renegade, you don't make it as an entrepreneur. So I think it all stood to me. Who do you think inspired you most while you were growing up? You know what? My dad is a salesman by trade and he got out of us a couple of decades ago, but I always fashioned myself on him to a degree, very much the salesperson. I started my career off in sales, selling advertising. And so I suppose from if you're to pick a hero, admittedly, I didn't really get involved in kind of the business of business until I started to move up the ranks in sales, sales management, sales directorships. At that point, I started to pick up newspapers. Prior to that, I was never interested in business. I I treated my job as a job. I just wanted to get my wage, buy my sports car and and live the dream as a young 20 something. It, It never occurred to me to look at business people as icons, really. In later life, yes, of course, there are many people that I admire. But certainly when I was starting out, I looked at my dad. Believe in yourself. That's it. I like it. You said you wanted to get the wage. And we'll touch on this later on the podcast and get a sports car and live the dream. Was there a car that you imagined yourself driving down Whitehall Road on? I'll tell you a story about the first sales job I ever had. It was with a company called O'Sullivan Graphics. And I was, I think, 19, maybe. And they hired me as a salesperson, maybe 20. And I wasn't even in there six weeks and they fired me. And I hadn't even gotten to go out and sell anything. They had a like a catalog of 3,000 products from HB pencils to Apple Max. Right. So I was in the process of learning all of those scrambling. And they had gotten me through an agency. And they were coming up to the time where they were going to have to pay the agency the commission or else get rid of me and get somebody else. And they decided to get rid of me. I was gutted. I will not lie. I, you know, cried for three weeks. 
And in that moment, a friend of mine called me and she was like, 98 FM, have an ad in the newspaper. They're looking for people. Get in there and get selling. So I can't sell. They're never going to hire me. And she said, just send in a CV. Do your work, your magic, send in your CV. You're definitely going to do this. And I got the job. I, I harassed my way into getting the job and the rest is history. But very quickly, I had it in my brain that I wanted to be driving past O'Sullivan Graphics uh, in a convertible yes. Merc. So again, I get there in the end, Brian. That was what drove me. I thought, wow, they absolutely devastated my confidence. Not for long now, mind you. But that drove me pretty hard, no pun intended, to get that Mercedes, convertible Mercedes. And I had it within about two years. So I was happy. I was happy uh, with that. But that, that, that was a motivating factor. Is that business still open? Did you get to drive past them? It is closed. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because they didn't keep you on. Um, true, look, this is true. I know you spent some, uh, a, a fair amount of your early days in uh, radio. You said you talked about sales, but do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? Because I noticed that we're going to talk about kilter and mm. uh, intro matchmaking. And you've said your dad was part sales. Any brothers, sisters, mother, uncle, aunties, <laughs> grandfathers? No, not a one, actually. I had a, a very ordinary upbringing. I, was, I grew up in Whitehall in a three-bed semi-D. My dad was a salesman, made it up to the sales management level. He ran a, a big electrical store. And, he, you know, he was quite successful as a salesperson, but there were no entrepreneurs. And it didn't really ever occur to me to be an entrepreneur until quite a bit later into my kind of late 20s. And there were a number of mitigating factors around that decision to move away from PAYE employee to I wanted to be the employer. We were coming up to a recession. Things weren't going great in advertising. I was running radio stations. I could see that things just weren't going well. And we were doing monthly board meetings at that stage. And I just looked around the table and I thought all of these people are making all these decisions. And not like I was a hostage, but I certainly wasn't in charge of the decision-making. When I thought to myself, I would like to be in that decision-making seat. I'd like to be the one that's the director. And ultimately, that's not ever going to happen for me if I continue to be an employee. Yes, I might move into different companies. I might go to Google or wherever it is. But ultimately, I didn't want to be that small fish in a big pond. I wanted to be that decision maker, but that was much later. I was very happy for the first decade of my career to draw down my salary, have no risk, pay my mortgages and all that kind of thing. And so, no, in, in a long way of answering your question, I didn't have anybody directly within my sphere of influence that inspired me to be an entrepreneur. It just came about. What I'm hearing you say to me is that what, planted the seed in your brain of moving from employee to entrepreneur was the ability to be in that decision-making seat. Mm -hmm. But you, as you said, you spent the first decade of your career in companies like 98FM, Sunshine, iRadio. Any lessons learned from those companies that you took when you decided to go out by yourself? Yeah, I, I became exposed to kind of board level. What was I, maybe 25? And... I was privy to an awful lot of key decision-making conversations. I could see what motivated shareholders. I could see what motivated directors and how all those decisions trickle down throughout the company. I remember being in 98FM, for instance, and a decision would be made and it would be inflicted on everybody. And it was a great experience to get above that, into that C-suite level 
where you could be, become privy to the reasons, the motivating factors around all of these reasons um, and discover how business worked. I didn't ever do a business degree. So it was a really amazing learning curve and I really enjoyed it. And the more I got of it, the more exposure I got of, to it, the more I wanted. But yeah, certainly at board level, those being privy to those conversations was invaluable. Here's what I know about you so far. You're a mother of two kids. You've been to places like California, Belgium, Italy, London. Jamie Oliver has retweeted you on Twitter. <laughs> What's one thing you're into or curious about that not a lot of people know about you? Oh, I do like cooking. What else am I into? My husband always gives out that I don't have any hobbies. <clears throat> no, I love cooking. Love my kids, love sitting down and learning with them. But ultimately, I don't have any hobbies. And what I like thinking about, and this is going to sound... It's going to sound really uh, contrived, but it's not contrived. I think about business all the time. <laughs> I literally think about it all the time. I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep thinking about it. And I get great joy from it because I think there is never an end to learning. I love every time I have conversations with people all day, every day. I probably have four or five meetings. Usually three of those would be new conversations with people. And every single conversation I have, I learn something new and I love it. And it changes my way of thinking. And so I don't actually have any hobbies. And Fergal gives out to me. He's look, you need to get your switch off, compartmentalize, stop thinking about work. And But I don't think it's work. And they say that you never do a day's work if you work at your hobby. And that's true. And I work at my hobby because I love business. So yeah. That's, that's basically it. What else do people not know about me? I'm a heavy metaler at heart. I wore stretchies before they became skinny jeans. And I bought them in... In Asha on the third floor of, of Stephen's Green, I wore parka jackets with Metallica painted on the back. I'm a closet rocker. That's, that's, is, that's is, people don't know about me. Is, is that your band of choice if you could ever see one band live, Metallica? Oh, do you know, it would probably be the impossible like Alice in Chains or Stone Temple Pilots. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So I'd say you're looking forward to when when concerts can open back up and people can start attending those things. Yeah, well, I thought that was Bon Jovi with a friend of mine and we were absolutely, you know, washed out of it, but it was a fantastic experience. But uh, sorry, I'm feeling like I'm getting too old, but I left halfway through. <laughs> I actually left my last one as well. I looked around and I was like, everyone's about ten, a decade younger than me here. I better leave. It was I, funny. I spotted my younger sister at it and I said, nah, this is time to, I'm I'm out. <laughs> Um, anyway, look, in the last kind of three, four minutes, you've mentioned the word learning at least five or six times. Mm -hmm. So it would be, I, I'd regret it if I didn't ask this. Uh, you wrote an article for the currency once and you were talking about how a quote struck you. And I'm reading the quote here. It was the missing element on a balance sheet is people. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said in your previous world of radio, if an employee wanted to upscale, it meant problems or extra cost. Yeah. Now in tech, Taking into consideration a study by LinkedIn that said 94% of employees say that they would stay at a company longer if they simply invested in helping them learn. Mm. Uh, what would you say to someone if uh, they owned a company and uh, an employee came to that employer and said, I want to invest in myself, or the employer was looking to invest in people? What would you say to them now? Yeah, that quote was given to me by Dave Feenan from SkillsNet. And he's a very accomplished guy around the benefits of upskilling your staff retention has become one of those very hot topics that i'm involved in ibec i'm on the tech hr forum in there and in there you're getting to rub shoulders with the hr directors of the biggest of big tech companies 
And up until 20 years ago, employee retention was achieved with one thing, and that was money. Benefits didn't really come into it. Yeah, you'd get your health care or whatever, but ultimately that's just money. And then since big tech started to take over and suck up all the skill from the economy and from the pool of talent, retention became a much bigger deal. And it's a really big issue for indigenous companies like ours and other big, even indigenous tech companies, even extremely successful ones, you need to be on top of your game when it comes to giving your, having really good insight into what your employees want and constant training and continuous professional development, even for the impression of options of getting better at something. And it's, everybody knows when they're in their job that they're getting better at it and they're becoming more efficient at it. But it's very easy to forget about those people that are really brilliant at their job because all of a sudden one day they hand in their notice because they haven't been challenged. You you really appreciate them because they're amazing at at their job, but you're really hoping they don't move on. But there's a real change in mindset that you have to have because you might have somebody that's brilliant at their job for three years, but you're better off promoting them at their, their professional development into a different role. And accept the fact that they do need different roles and that you'll have to replace them ultimately because either you do that and you get the benefit of that really amazing employee in a different role in a better role or else they leave the company altogether and a part of that is continuous professional development through training there's linda courses and things like that through linkedin it doesn't have to cost a fortune now the the training du jour is i suppose doing a a master's or an, an mba or that kind of thing mbas have my own view about MBAs I don't think they're amazing I think some are better than others but general anecdotal feedback is that the learning benefits from them are quite small whereas it's just the line on the CV I have done this is is what people go for if I was to win the lotto tomorrow if I was to sell my company for 200 million I would go and I'd study economics I do an economics degree I love the notion of learning I love the notion understanding more about the world and and all that but I think everybody's a little bit like that it's not unique to me I think everybody really likes the notion of getting better at something knowing more about something absolutely I hadn't planned on asking this but you've mentioned retention and it's come up on a couple of previous podcasts how do uh, smaller companies compete with the large tech companies like HubSpot and Google and Mm -hmm. Salesforce in Dublin and I know there's people out there who have a preference for working for early stage startups. They're, they're not a fan of the big corporate culture, but other than learning and you can add stock options to this as an answer, but what other ways do you see as attracting talent to early stage startups? For early stage, I think it is being a big fish in a small pond. I think everybody loves the idea of getting in at the ground level and having some influence. If you're one of, 5,000 employees at that point your power to influence is quite limited unless you go in at a really senior position in the SVP or whatever it is so if you go in and there's only five people in the team your opportunity to really shape that company is just it's incredible you can't buy that type of opportunity I also think that there is a, a certain measure of some people that have worked for big tech Not that they feel like they owe society or anything like that, but I think they feel like they would like to change it up and give back a little bit. There's an element, certainly with people I've spoken to that are like Facebook or whatever, Google, or a certain element of having sold one soul for the golden handcuffs. Um, 
So there, there really is an expectation that if you get an Irish employee that's ex-big tech, they'll take a bit of a, a bit of a dip. So they'll take a bit of a hit on, on the salary. To get in there and have a little bit more of a sphere of influence, I like the learning experiences, because you're part of the macro if you're, you're in at that early stage. And you can really learn a lot about the world when you're in startup. This has been an incredible experience for me. I've learned more in the last two years than I have in the 18 years before that working in business. And I think that startup is very much appreciated as that place where you will get that type of life experience that you can't get anywhere else. You just can't get it if you go in as a, a small fish in a big pond. And I think that's that's certainly for Kilter. We have a team of 10 and nobody's getting paid. <laughs> the reason I think that we managed to do that and that people are so giving up their time is and not an awful lot of startups have this going for them. So we're quite fortunate is that element of giving back to society, because ultimately, mm-hmm. yeah, we want a successful business, but we want to protect 15 million children from cyberbullying, grooming and suicide and self-harm within six years. And I think that's what's gotten us the followers we have uh, on top of the fact that we've got that startup culture as well. Let's get into Kilter because what's what shocked me was two stats. One was safety tech set to be worth one billion by twenty twenty five, according to the UK. That's yeah. that must be nice for your ears to hear that because mm, I know you've yeah. mentioned two hundred, which must be your target. I, I don't know if it is or isn't, but ninety three percent of eight to thirteen year olds have their own smartphone. I got mine thirteen or fourteen, which is crazy to think that ninety three percent. But scared me even more. Twenty five percent of six year olds. Yeah. What is a six-year-old doing with a phone have their own device? So you've called Kilder the super nanny smartphone filter. Talk to me about what it is. Yeah, so it's an operating system modification to the Android phone. It's an embedded child protection software that detects and blocks cyberbullying, grooming, and suicide and self-harm through messaging apps. So parents have four main fears when they give their child a smartphone, equal fears, that they'll be cyberbullied, groomed, access pornography, or spend too much time online. And the state of the art is the parental control market is apps. So apps operate on a peer-to-peer system. So there's about 250 mm-hmm. apps in the Apple, in the Google store, about 220 in the Apple store. But apps operate on a peer-to-peer system, so they can't access data within other apps. So therefore, they can block pornography and they can cut off the phone. So they deal with the time spent limitations issue. But none of them can access other apps. So they can't access messaging apps. So therefore, they cannot deal with cyberbullying and grooming. Because cyberbullying and grooming is all done through through messaging apps. When I looked at this, I, I, I thought to myself, 50% of parents' needs aren't being met here. If, if we build it, they'll come. And I had to educate myself in technology and, and, and realize why nobody was doing it because it seems so blindingly obvious. And the reason nobody was doing it is because it's hard. You can't, there's no autonomy. You have to be part of the operating system. There's no two ways about it because the earliest point in the technological stack that you can access data coming, all that incoming and outgoing data is the kernel level. Without an embedded solution, you can't deal with cyberbullying and grooming. So ours is a it's an OS modification, and it's embedded. So there's challenges with that. We're seen as high risk, for instance, because we rely upon a B2B customer to for market entry. If you're an app, for instance, you can spend half a million or a million on your app and launch the app store and let it bring the money in. You can't do that. We don't have that autonomy. However, all of our competitors are B2C. And scale is really sluggish and really costly if you're B2C. We'll be B2B. So we'll license to high volume repeat order telcos. And therefore, our opportunity to scale rapidly globally and achieve global machine standard, which is what our goal is, Mm. it's absolutely within reach. Vodafone, for instance, 
they have a footprint in 12 European countries. We do our pilot with them and then all of a sudden we're across Europe. It's as quick as that. It's just getting over that kind of that, that high risk perception in the beginning is the difficult part. But we will be getting back to your comment on the, the safety tech. So that was a study that was done by the UK government. So safety tech is really strong in the UK. They do well. And the UK government commissioned this study to see what the, the market will be worth. So and it's accurate. And there's going to be a subdivision of that, which is filtering tech. And that's going to be even stronger. Because if you look at the legislation, COVID, people keep asking me about the impact of, of, of COVID on the business. So COVID has been quite good to us in an unfortunate way in that since COVID, children are spending an awful lot more unrestricted time and unsupervised time online. So there's been a sharp increase in online child abuse material and a 27% increase in cyberbullying. So that made the European Commission take, sit up and take notice and expedite legislation to deal with harmful content. So... You've got things like the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill, which will impose GDPR-type fines on big tech if they don't take down harmful content. So harmful content is cyberbullying, grooming, suicide, and self-harm content, right? So that's 20 million or 10% of turnover, whichever is the greater. So it's too high a cost for the likes of the Googles and Facebook to absorb as a cost of doing business. So they'll have to deal with harmful content on the public platforms. But the OSMR and the likes of the Digital Services Act They don't compel big tech to look into encrypted apps because they say they can't. So that harmful content, once big tech start removing it from public platforms, it won't just go away. It'll move to encrypted apps where they're not compelled to look. And we can deal with encrypted messaging. So there's going to be this big wave of legislation that creates this need for kilter and filtering, adequate filtering technology. So that's going to be a subdivision of safety tech. And and they'll all merge with the parental control market is is going to be worth 8 billion in two years time. So all of these combined, it's, it's quite quite a bit of money that's going to be sloshing around. Yeah, and kudos to you because you've mentioned this is what been o- o- over two years, and yeah. and you've been you've been slogging away at it. And yeah. I'm I'm sure you've come up against many challenges over those last two years or obstacles that you didn't expect, objections. What can you give me an example of what one or two of those might have been that you didn't account for? Yeah, I suppose when we got into this. It's such a disruptive technology when you compare it with everything else that's in the space. And look, every startup says this, oh, my tech is disruptive, blah, blah, blah. We went very early to child protection stakeholders, big global organizations, to demonstrate, to prove that we had novelty, that our technology was disruptive. Because I suppose the key is everyone thinks somebody is doing it. Everyone's like... Well, it's blindingly obvious. Everybody wants to. And all parents yeah. want, to, want to protect their kids from cyberbullying and grooming. Well, surely this exists. Surely Google is doing it. Surely Facebook is doing it. No, they're not. Why is nobody doing it? But then people forget. At one point, the guys that started Airbnb had to, the, the idea was so good, but they still had to convince people. They still had to go, no, seriously, nobody's doing this. Mm. So we looked for, because we couldn't convince people that nobody was doing it, we decided to get the filter patented. Because if you get your patent through, that's a demonstration of novelty because you can't get a patent if somebody else already is doing it, right? So we decided to apply for our patent and that was granted by the United States and South Korea, Japan, Australia. So that proved novelty. We wanted to go further because we kept getting told, no, surely somebody is doing this. No, they're not. So we went to UNESCO and we said, look, you guys in the Anti-Bullying Research Centre, you're getting approached all the time. And he said, yeah, 
every single week, some company comes in and presents their product and says, we've got the cure for cyberbullying. And they never do. UNESCO confirmed that our approach was completely unique and absolutely disruptive. So we got that in writing and we were like, this is golden. EU Kids Online support us. All of the child protection stakeholders love us, right? But that, yet still that wasn't enough. And then now we have an investor who's committed, got an independent technical DD done and a patent report. And that involved a deep dive into the parental control space to make sure what we were saying, what UNESCO was saying was true. And they said, yeah, it's true. Nobody else is doing this. And yet still, the big challenge has been for us getting funding. It's, we have all of this independent evidence that our approach is unique that it works because we've got our proof of concept. We've got our prototype that you can see on the website filtering WhatsApp messages. We've got all of this independent support and yet still funding, it has been a, the, the biggest challenge. And that surprised me. I, I thought starting off, as soon as we got the patent through, we've got our novelty. No, too high risk, seen as too high risk. Now what's happened has been the legislation that's come in has gotten us the traction that we need because the investors now that we are, are committed to us are, they can see this legislative wave and investors love a legislative wave. It's the same for, it would have been the same for the likes of cybersecurity companies when GDPR was on the horizon. You know, that created, GDPR created this big wave of demand mm. for official, for um, formal cybersecurity measures within companies. People before, companies before that are kind of loose, a bit loose about it. They might have strategies in place. Yeah. They might have a bit of data protection, but nothing formal. So GDPR created that big, arguably created this huge, big sector. And the same is going to happen for us. And our investors have seen that. that but if, if it hadn't been for COVID, probably the European Commission would still have been a little bit slow about the legislation, but it's been pushed through. And in the United States, you've got the likes of Section 230, which is it's arguably the 26 words that gave birth to the internet because it provides big tech with indemnity against harmful information that's public, published on their platforms. But there's a real movement now towards- Wait, what, 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 I didn't get that last part. What did you say, the legislation? So it's 26 words long. Don't ask me to quote it to you. I won't be able to <laughs> do it justice. It's 26 words long and it provides indemnity to big tech for the for harmful content that might be published on their platforms. Okay. So basically it allows for a free internet for all. And it, but it protects the likes of Google and Facebook and WhatsApp from being prosecuted or made liable for harmful content that appears on their platforms. For instance, if, if there's bullying on the platform, if there's grooming on the platform, they can't be held accountable because they stand back and say, no, we're not the publishers, we're just the platform. Somebody else is publishing this. Would so that be why they are not, like, they weren't as fast forward moving on this as you were? Because they can always just go, look at what we have here. Yeah. You see, they, big tech have been at pain since day dot to distance themselves from the content that they that appears on their platform. They say, that's not us. We're not the publishers. We're just the platform. So, and Section 230 allows them to do that. But there's now a movement towards repealing 230 or amending 230. So it's not just in Europe that all of this legislation is happening. Eventually, big tech all over the world will have to remove harmful content, but then it'll just go into encryption. And Facebook now are, they announced this quite some time ago, but it appeared recently again in the last couple of weeks that they're, they plan to encrypt Messenger 
private messaging. And again, that means that's another place that harmful content can go and the legislation doesn't compel them to look inside encrypted messaging. Surely that on one end excites you then because it's another product that you can, like I know WhatsApp is encrypted. I guess I'm confused with my question there. Does, that can't be good that they're going to encrypt Facebook messages, but on the other end, you might, does that not uh, get more awareness of your product because your product is something that can come in and, and, and solve that and, and help yeah. protect parents against bullying for that? Yeah, look, the more messaging moves to, or the more content moves towards messaging and off public platforms, the better for culture, but the worse for kids. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say, but I didn't want to yeah. say it like that. Um, well, it's an absolute fact. And for instance, there's, a, there's an organization called NECMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and it's in the United States. And that's where most, if not all, harmful content goes to get analyzed and filed. NECMEC, for instance, they get a lot of information from Facebook. I think they, there was a headline a couple of years ago that Facebook announced that they had sent something in the region of 8 million questionable images of children to NECMEC for processing. So they were saying, look, we're doing a good job here. We're catching all this, all these images and we're sending them on to this independent body. And the director for the center at the time, Michelle Delan, came out and said, that's great Facebook, but what about WhatsApp? That's where the real harm is. Mm. What about WhatsApp? It's one of the most dangerous uh, messaging apps for children because it's not filtered. There's, there's yeah. no visibility in it. Facebook are completely blind when it comes to that. Now they'll argue, the argument for encryption is data privacy. And we get that asked this sometimes from a children's perspective. What about their privacy? You're looking into their information. And look, the, the world is divided into two halves. There's the one half that think that, for instance, parents would think that the juice is worth the squeeze. If you're looking at my anonymized child's data then, and they can't be identified because we use named entity recognition, we use encryption, the child can't be identified. We look inside the anonymized messages for harmful content. And those parents would think, that's okay, you can look at that data, I don't care. Yep. Just protect my child. I would lean into that. But then there's the other half of the world that think, no, data is sacrosanct. You should not look at anybody's data, specifically not children's data. And that's okay, that's their opinion. <laughs> But yeah. the, the view I would always have would be you've got to balance data privacy with the rights of the child and the rights of the child being the child has a right to use their phone and not be sexually abused or cyber bullied or served suicide and self-harm content that might inspire them to harm themselves. That's the children's right. They don't care yeah. about their data. The interesting you know? part is out of this is episode probably 50 out of everyone I've chatted to, I'd say 45 of them have talked about how their early influences as a child had a massive impact on their adolescent's life. And that's a good solid point to make that if, if they go through trauma in their early days, uh, 99, maybe 100% of the time, they carry that into their adult life. And I can see that through my guests and there's probably numerous studies you can point to, but look, you've had to jump over numerous hurdles over the last couple of years. And I, and I guess my question is what continues to drive you? Yeah, and I won't lie, I have days. And I'm sure all of your startup founders will tell you that they have days. And I, like, I've got a really great network of startup buddies and we rely on each other for, you know, one minute you get a PFO and you're like devastated. Why am I doing this? Why am I insane? I could make loads of money elsewhere. 
And then five minutes later, you'll get an email that's vaguely encouraging and it gives you the energy to power through the rest of the day. I want two things. I, I, I want three things, right? I want money to live a life I'd like to live. I'd like to grow up and buy a big house and all those things. And anyway, I have aspirations. I want a, a good retirement. I want to enjoy my children. All of those things. I want a legacy for my kids. I would like for them, they're six and four at the moment. I would like for them to be proud of what I've done when they're 18, 20 and be, to be an inspiration for them so that they can say, look, anything can be done if you set your mind to it. Yeah. And also I want to protect children. The idea for this is it came about when I was pregnant with my son and I kept getting served the image of Alan Kurdi. Do you remember the little Syrian boy that washed up on the beach in Turkey? Yeah. And I couldn't cope with looking at his image. And I looked around for a filter and I couldn't find one. And then that kind of snowballs. But ultimately, the reason it snowballed is because I became a parent. I became a parent and I became terrified. It was all of a sudden, it was headlines of children that had been systematically cyberbullied, groomed, sextorted from, coerced and pushed into suicide or self-harm. And it was too late by the time the parents realized it was even a problem. And it is such a pervasive issue. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And I'm looking at my six-year-old son and I'm thinking about that 25% of six-year-olds have their own smartphone. And that might sound jarring. But that's because you can only hold off giving your child a phone as long as 50% of the class don't have a phone. Yeah. If you continue to withhold the phone and more than 50% of the class have a phone, ironically, you're setting your child up to be bullied because you're setting them up for harassment by exclusion. Because all the other kids are communicating with each other on their phones. They're all on whatever new app is out and your child is left out of that communication process. So they become excluded and bullied because of it. So I feel for parents because some parents will give in quicker and then that pressurizes the other parents that had intended, oh no, no, I'm not going to give my child a smartphone until they're 11 or 12 and they can cope with it emotionally. But those other parents are then pressurized into it and, they, and they're right to give in because otherwise the child gets left out. And that's only going to get worse. Like that 25% figure, that's a year or two old. And like that, that's like, insane. The market technology is not reversing, it's getting worse. So, we need to stop burying our heads in the sand and thinking that some there's going to be some miraculous fix and that smartphones are going to go away. They won't. We need solutions to this, bona fide solutions, so that we can feel better about giving our child a smartphone and know that they'll be protected. So, that's the third thing I want is to protect children. And we've got our we have our financial goals, our revenue forecasts that have been forecast to death over the next six years. But of equal concern to us is the figures, the societal benefit figures. And that 15 million children to be protected by Kilter by year six is an absolute goal for us as much as the revenue forecasts are. You've already answered one of my next questions, which was fast forward to 2030, look back on the last decade, what would you hope to have achieved? You've somewhat answered that by, by that. And kudos to you. I support you fully. Two more questions for you. You've touched on your husband. I think his name was Frank, was it? Fergal. Fergal, mentioning him leading the other business and trying to probably jokingly entice you to move to Austria. But... <laughs> If you could visit any country in the world right now to go on holiday, where would that be? Oh, my word. That's a really good question. Probably 
I'd really quite like to go to New York, actually. We've got a, a couple of people that we know in New York. I haven't been there since my honeymoon, which is coming up on seven years ago. And I love New York. New Yorkers, I just find I have a great affinity with. I love the city. I love urban life. My husband keeps saying his family come from Castellan Bear. We go down there and I really enjoy it. But he often, when we're down there, he's, he'd say, oh, I'd love to be here for, just stay here for a month or so. I live here for six years or for a year or whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm a city girl. I'm a city girl. So New York is probably the answer. And then maybe we'll just stop off in Napa Valley for a bit of wine tasting. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Final question. Your house is burning down, but your two kids, your husband, any animals you have, they're all safe. What one item, if you could only save one item, would you save? Oh my word, what one item would I save? And you can't say laptop because almost everyone says their laptop. Well, it would clearly be my phone. It would, it would definitely be my phone. I'm not a phone addict. but And, and nobody needs their laptop. Sure, everything is in OneDrive or Dropbox. Um, so they don't need you'd it. Think, you'd think. You think. The stories I've heard of people losing stuff is crazy. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have lost stuff. Um, I, no, I would say... I would say my phone or my laptop bag because I have all of these, all my journals. Ah. So every time I talk to somebody, I fill up a page and that's what I refer back to for when my, I have a brain fart and I need to remember things because not everything gets written into my laptop and, and yeah. sent up to OneDrive. Everything gets goes in here. So I've got about, I don't know, 10 of these that I've burned through in the last couple of years. There's a lot of important information in them. So I take my laptop case because it has all these. Excellent. Look, I've thoroughly enjoyed spending the last 40, 45 minutes getting to know you a little more. 